particularly encouraged by the music this morning and the music of this season. Thank you to Victoria Brickley. Is Victoria here in the sanctuary? Did she scoot out? Okay. Um, Victoria and the team have led us well over this last season. I'm very grateful for them. The Bible says to give honor to those whom honor is due, and honor is certainly due our music team. Thank you, Victoria and your team. Let's pray together. Father, I come encouraged. I thank you for the second week of Advent. I thank you for the great privilege that is mine now to preach the gospel by expounding the Bible to the people that you have given me to love. I thank you, Father, for this congregation, and we thank you above all things for the gift of the Lord Jesus, who we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would stand forth from the text that was just read for us. Would you help us to navigate this wonderful ancient account of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Uh, show us, Lord, how, how to be faithful to the scriptures. We want to cut a straight line through this passage and handle it well. And, and we want to see why this is of shattering relevance for us in our day today. So come and fuse the first century with the 21st century by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit as we lift up Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 53 years ago, uh, songwriters Edward Pola and George Wiley penned an instant Christmas classic and released it in October of 1963. There have been folks who have covered it over the years from Garth Brooks to Harry Connick Jr., but I think you might agree with me that it was Andy Williams' original version of It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year uh, is the one that is burned on our collective memory. I won't embarrass any of us by singing it from the pulpit this morning, although I am given to sing from time to time from the pulpit. Um, but you know the basic thrust of the song, right? It's a, it's a rather American, blatantly secular approach to the Advent season. Nevertheless, it's the most wonderful time of the year, we're told, right? Uh, with, with kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. Uh, it's the hap happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow. There will be scary ghost stories, scary ghost stories, and tales from Christmases long, long ago. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. Friends, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, sort of, right? Even a cursory listening to some of those lyrics uh, we're not struck with wonder so much as panic, right? Everyone telling you be of good cheer? I mean, how much of that can you take any given day? Folks just dropping by your house unannounced? Like when you're two and a half hours deep into a Netflix binge and they just drop by unannounced? Scary ghost stories? Are you kidding me? This is the most wonderful time of the year? I wonder what the rest of the year holds. Well, the song attempts to paint a positive portrait of the Christmas season in our culture. I think we'd have to admit it's all rather idealistic than realistic, right? What the song fails to highlight are the all-too-common realities, such as loneliness, depression, relapse into addiction, or destructive patterns of behavior. Holidays are very well known 
for those realities. In fact, it's simply not true to say that this is the most wonderful time of the year for an increasing number of people in our culture. In fact, I much prefer the frank realism of uh, verse 3 of it came upon a midnight clear. Remember that one? And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. That is an accurate portrait of the Advent season for many in our midst, right? Just scraping by beneath life's crushing load. And I won't ask for a show of hands right now, just a knowing glance will do. But I wonder if you're in one of those seasons right now, or perhaps you've been in one, or somebody maybe you care about very closely to you right now in your house, or maybe in your web of relationships is there under that crushing load. Second Corinthians 12.7, the Apostle Paul refers to what he calls his thorn in the flesh. We can speculate endlessly about what exactly this was, a soul sickness of some kind. He might have been referring to some relational pain in his life. It's possible, I suppose. It might have been a physical problem of, of some sort. I tend to think it was a physical ailment of some kind, but in any event, Paul referred to it as his thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, this thorn in the flesh, it presented him with excruciating pain. It, at the same time, was the sovereign work of God for his good and a messenger of Satan to harass him. It appears to have been a disability that had poor prognosis because the Lord asked him, or he asked the Lord three times that he would take it away, and the Lord told him no every time. Whatever his thorn was, it humbled him. Frankly, it humiliated him. In the end, it created a sort of permanent and palpable sense of weakness in the Apostle Paul. It brought him to his awareness of his own limitations. Does that describe anything in your life right now? In the life of someone that you love? An aching gap of some kind as you head into the holiday season? Well, if so, then please listen closely. Take heart this Advent season when it comes to that thorn in your flesh. God is at work. Take heart this Advent season when it comes to that thorn in your flesh. God is is at work. If you are a Christian this morning, I want to give you three reasons why you should believe that. And trusting that you have your Bibles open to the text that we just read for us, let's dive right in. Luke chapter 1. First reason that you can take heart this Advent season when it comes to that thorn in your flesh. Number one, Zechariah and Elizabeth's story reminds us that God works wonders through the pain of his people. God works wonders through the pain of his people. Would you follow along with me as we revisit, revisit verses 5 to 7 of our passage? Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But 
they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. God works wonders through the pain of his people. Our story unfolds nearly 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East at a time when Herod the Great was king over a particular region of ancient Palestine known as Judea. Though he was called the Great, uh, there was truly very little great about him. He was appointed by Mark Antony in the Roman Senate about a generation prior to the birth of our Lord. He was a self-serving and violent and vain ruler over the Jewish people. In verse 5, we're introduced to the first major characters in Luke's gospel, Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth. The text tells us that both of them came from priestly families, uh, Abijah and Aaron. This is a remarkable pedigree for this couple. This couple has, has holiness in their family lineage. But not only do they have holiness in their family lineage, it appears that they have holiness in their very lives as well. Uh, verse 6 is striking, isn't it? The text says, and there's no footnote on this, they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, stirring into this, a, a text like 1 Kings 8.46, which says there's no one who does not sin, or a text like Romans 3.23 that reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including Zechariah and Elizabeth, no doubt. Um, we want to understand verse 6 within the parameters of these verses. No one except Christ himself is sinless. But let's not gut this text of its force either. Luke is making a major league statement about the holiness, about the godliness of this couple. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. The idea here of blamelessness is the idea of blamelessness uh, in comparison to those around them. They were above reproach in the eyes of people. You could sling mud their way, but it just wouldn't stick. Um, you know, the New Testament doesn't just describe blamelessness, but it actually prescribes it for us, not just as a possibility, but an actuality for our lives. Now, again, don't hear me say sinless perfection. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about living above reproach blamelessness. Listen to Philippians 2, 14 to 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless, innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So that's, that's Zechariah and Elizabeth, walking with the Lord, um, inheriting and living out faith in the God of Israel. And you have to believe that this couple could have any single gift on the planet. Wouldn't it be children to whom they could entrust this gift of faith in the Lord? Children to whom they could bequeath their spiritual inheritance? This is where verse 7 just pierces through this text, doesn't it? But they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. It would take no imagination to conclude that Zechariah and Elizabeth knew 
they knew the truth of something like Psalm 137, verses 3 to 5, that says, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. They knew that text. They believed that text. And it was the supreme ache of their lives that it seemed the reverse of this text were true of them. He shall not be put to shame who has many children. But what about those for whom the Lord has withheld the fruit of the womb? Where are they to go with their shame? Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Okay, Does that mean Zechariah was, was cursed? They were childless. They were old. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Were they being punished? Verse 7 says they were advanced in years. That's their thorn in the flesh for both of them. Now, Elizabeth may not have thought of it this way, but it also placed her among an elite company of saints. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, all come to mind, all four of whom were barren, all four of whom God had designs on their lives to both conceive and bear children. Of course, she couldn't have known that's what was going to happen, of course, but we know what happened because God opens and closes the womb. He is the creator and the sustainer of all life. And verse 24 tells us, we have to skip ahead to the end of the text to learn this, but by God's sovereign grace in her ripe old age, Elizabeth conceived. She conceived. So what does this teach us? Well, it tells us, for instance, that God works wonders through the pain of his people. Charles Spurgeon, uh, who never bore children, of course, but knew the exquisite physical suffering that he knew on a number of levels, uh, said this about pain and about suffering in our lives. It's always struck me as incredibly helpful. Listen to this. Spurgeon wrote this. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that that bitter cup was never filled by his hand and that my trials were, were never measured out by him nor sent to me in their arrangement and weight and quantity. Now, he's just getting started. Listen to the rest of this. I venture to say that the greatest earthly blessing God can give to any of us is health with the exception of sickness. Sickness has frequently been of more use to the saints of God than health has. If some men that I know of could be only favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. I would not wish for any man a long time of sickness and pain, but a twist. And now and then, might, God might almost ask for him, a, a sick wife, a newly made grave, poverty, slander, sinking of spirit might teach lessons nowhere else to be learned. Trials drive us to the realities of religion, end quote. I hope you believe this, that God 
assigns and designs and ordains the suffering of his people for our good. Not just believe in it, but exalt in it. Romans 5, 3-5 says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Finally, 1 Peter 4.19, Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Take heart this Advent season when it comes to that thorn in your flesh. You have it in mind? I trust that you do. Hold it there. Hold it in mind. And know this. Zechariah and Elizabeth's story reminds us that God works wonders through the pain of his people. Second point. Zechariah and Elizabeth's story reminds us that God works wonders through the prayers of his people. Zechariah and Elizabeth's story reminds us that God works wonders through the prayers of his people. Would you follow along with me once again, and I'll read verses 8 to 13. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. God works wonders through the prayers of his people. Verses 8 to 13 have prayer written all over them. Three times we see a reference to incense. You see that there? Verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. They all smell of the scent of this ancient aromatic spice. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, a lot is the big deal. Um, first century Jewish temple worship is what's going on here. The people of God are gathered round about the house of God, the temple. The temple was the geographic location on earth where God made his very presence to be known and enjoyed. And it was the role of priests like Zechariah to enter into the temple confines and to burn incense and to offer sacrifices in what was known as the holy place. This is an extraordinary honor for Zechariah. Um, at the time, it would be important to know this, there's about 18,000 priests in the nation of Israel. And it says Zechariah is chosen by lot, so his division is on duty, and he gets selected by lot. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah to burn incense in the holy place. This is something that he would simply never forget. And the central burden of these six verses is that God, is God and his people are at prayer during this time. Now, in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testament, prayer, uh, incense is employed as a metaphor for prayer consistently. Now, think about this man. Zechariah is childless. It's the thorn in his flesh. It's the pain of his entire adult lifetime. And while he's chosen to enter the holy place and offer sacrifices to God while the smell of incense is burning around him, 
What do you think the cry of his heart is at that moment? Well, you don't have to guess to know. Uh, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2 say this, O Lord, I call upon your name. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That's what he's living out, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2 here. And in verse 10, we read that the whole multitude were praying outside at the hour of incense. And it's at that moment that the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the holy place just to the right of the altar. And Zechariah is scared stiff. Uh, He is terrified at the sight of this holy angelic messenger, this visitor. And Gabriel says to him then, just to calm him down in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. Imagine this. This is the lifelong thorn in your flesh. You've prayed about it more times than you can possibly recall. All you've known is your married life with this thorn. As much as you tried for it not to consume you, the presence of this thorn has just become your identity. And now here in a moment, this messenger of God, Gabriel himself, this angel, is telling you the waiting is over. The thorn is removed. And with the gift of this child, the ache of your heart will be made whole. And it all happened in response to prayer. You see how powerful prayer is? As we study the Gospel of Luke in the coming year, we're going to taste and see just how powerful prayer is. Here's why we want to be a praying church. Because our Savior is a praying Savior. Just a little tour through Luke's gospel. Luke 5, 16 tells us that Jesus w- would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Luke six twelve says that in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. All night, he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9, 18 notes that at one point, the disciples and Jesus, oh, the disciples note that Jesus was praying alone. But then at the time of the transfiguration, chapter 9, verses 28 to 29, the text says Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up the mountain to pray, and he was praying. Finally, Luke Luke 18, Luke 18, 1 to 8, we read that Jesus tells his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. Did you know that? That you are to always pray and never lose heart. Why does Jesus commend prayer to us so often, both by his personal example and his teaching? Because it gets the attention of God. If you like, it works. Prayer matters. It moves the hand that moves the world. Jesus taught that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So I'll just ask, with reference to the thorn in your flesh, do you? Do you take hold of God in prayer? And like Jacob in Genesis 32, 26, say to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God delights to answer the long unanswered prayers of his people. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite 19th century preachers, said this, God delays often, but he does not forget. 
blessings may come today as a result of old prayers which have almost passed from our memory and hope. There's somebody in the sanctuary this morning that's the product of about eight years of my prayer. And you don't even know who you are. But I I see you in the corner of my eye. Take heart this Advent season. When it comes to the thorn in your flesh, God is at work. God works wonders through the prayers of his people. Just with the 2020 vision is a perfect example. Let's not let him go until he blesses us, right? Final point today. Zechariah in Elizabeth's story reminds us that God works wonders through the promises he's made to his people. God works wonders through the promises that he's made to his people. Now, I realize it seems I've divided our text at a rather awkward spot, but there's a method to the madness here. Um, let's go ahead and finish reading our text and perhaps why, see why we're taking verses 14 to 25 together. Follow along with me once more and I'll read Gospel of Luke chapter 1, this time verses 14 to the end of the text. So Gabriel is speaking to Zechariah, and he says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the strength and power of Elijah to turn turn the children and the disobedient of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angels, For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Thank you. 